What is up, Dolphins, and welcome to the Finn Sports Football Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony John Deletti. If it's your first time on the podcast, welcome. If it's not your first time on the podcast, welcome back. And guys, it's been about a week and a half since I did my last podcast. Been on vacation with my girlfriend uh, in Arizona, visiting family. It was a very, very good, relaxing vacation. Just wanted to take about a week off uh, from the podcast. Uh, so right now I'm sitting in the hotel room. We are doing a drive back. It's about a 14-hour drive back. So we did it. You know, we broke it up in two days. We're at the hotel right now. Uh, and I, I thought it'd be time to get back into podcasting uh, after the vacation now that it's over with. So today on the podcast, I'm actually going to talk about a tweet that I made. I think it was about two days ago. And in the tweet, I talked about uh, things I noticed from watching Dolphins film. And I watched a lot of Dolphins film, rewatched a lot of stuff. Uh, from last year, the 2020 season, all 16 games, not just the games Tua was playing. Um, and I just, you know, it, it's been about, you know, right now we're looking at about four months, four and a half months since the season ended for the Dolphins. And so I just wanted to go back and re-watch uh, film now that I've been able to see the offseason moves, watch the draft. And the goal and the perspective that I wanted to do was I wanted to take it from a perspective of if I wasn't a Dolphin fan, right? If I was taking the Dolphin goggles off, the blinders, you know, because sometimes we as fans, you know, we, we, we are such enthusiasts with our fan base that we kind of have unrealistic views on our team. So I just wanted to look at it from like a casual football watcher's perspective. Like if I was not a Dolphin fan, if I was just some scout or some analyst watching Dolphins tape, what would I think the needs of the team were? Where would I see that the Dolphins struggled? Where did they succeed? And on top of all that, kind of evaluate the offseason moves and the draft uh, picks that they made and, and kind of hopefully get a better understanding as to why they picked who they did, where they did. So let me read the tweet before I get into it. In my tweet, I said, after rewatching a lot of Dolphins film from last year, five things jumped out to me. Number one, the edge play, unless schemed perfectly, was not good. Okay, so let's start with that. The edge play, unless schemed perfectly, wasn't good. Um, my initial view of the Dolphins edge rushers after this season ended was... I knew that there were a lot of schemed blitzes, right? I knew there were people like Emmanuel Ogba that got a lot of free rushes at the quarterback, and he had a great season, obviously nearly double-digit sacks, but he did benefit from having a lot of free rushes. So I knew that going into this. But again, I wanted to go watch the film as if I was just an analyst viewing the Dolphins' 2020 season. And what stood out to me and was actually very alarming is how little pressure our defensive line, specifically with edge rushers, how little pressure our edge rushers were able to apply when we only rushed four, right? When there wasn't a cover zero, we weren't having Jerome Baker and Kyle Van Neublitz. It was just Agba, Lawson, Wilkins, and Sealer. you know, say those four. It was alarming to me how very little time uh, how, or the low percentage of times or snaps 
that Agba and Shaq Lawson actually put consistent pressure on the quarterback. Okay, and the biggest game that stood out to me uh, with this was the, the Week 2 game against the Buffalo Bills. Um, and you'll notice a motif in this podcast episode is a lot of what I do or, or say pertains to how we did against the Buffalo Bills. Because you guys know if you listen to this podcast multiple times, until we're able to consistently beat the Buffalo Bills, not saying we have to sweep them every year, but until we can be competitive with them, um, I can't view this team as taking the next step yet. If we're able to consistently beat the Buffalo Bills, you know, split the series, maybe even have some, even if we lose, it's, it's tightly contested, like it's really close. That's when I'll be like, okay, this team is ready to go to championships, go to the AFC championship, win playoff games. But no playoff team, no team, the Chiefs, the Ravens, the Colts, the Buffalo Bills, if you're going to be a good team like that, none of those teams consistently get swept by division opponents. So until the Dolphins are able to consistently beat the Buffalo Bills, I, I can't say that we're ready to take that next step. However, you'll notice from what I'm about to say about edge rushers and then something else I have to talk about later on in the podcast, a lot of what the Dolphins offseason moves were was to, or at least I thought, they basically just were like, this is what we struggled with against the Bills, which was a motif again for things they struggled with against elite quarterbacks and good teams. This is what we struggled with. Let's go fix it, right? So staying with edge rushers, not to get too ahead of myself. When we played Josh Allen, it was alarming how little pressure we were getting on Josh Allen. Like he was just able to stand back there and sling the ball around all day. Like there were there were times in the game where I kid you not he he you know did three step drop or five five step drop and just stood still because there was so little pressure on him and as as highly as the Dolphins covet cornerbacks right we have Xavier Howard and Byron Jones if you expect your cornerback to cover a wide receiver who can run f- sub four five if you expect a cornerback to cover a guy and not know their route, right? Because cornerbacks don't know the route. They just, based off their technique and discipline, they they follow the route. But if you expect a guy to follow a wide receiver for four to five seconds plus, like, you know, the Dolphins uh, cornerbacks had to against the Buffalo Bills, it's a recipe for disaster, okay? It's like a well-oiled machine. You have to have a good pass rush that can get the ball out early, force some bad throws so the cornerbacks can intercept or not have to run for five seconds with the receivers. And you also have to have cornerbacks that get tight enough coverage to where the edge rusher has some time to get there. But it has to be a balance. And last year, it was so dominant and lopsided of, hey, I hope the cornerbacks have lockdown coverage or Xavier Howard makes an interception because if not, we ain't getting pressure on him. And the only way to get pressure on the quarterback is if we dial up a cover zero, which either can be a boom, right? We saw that with the fumble recovery against the Rams, or it can be a bust against the the Cardinals when Kyler Murray launched the bomb uh, on, on Byron Jones to Kirk Merritt. And yes, should Byron Jones have probably had some better coverage? Yeah, but I mean, if you're asking Byron Jones to keep up 
you know, on a, on a, you know, a seam route against a fast wide receiver like Kirk Merritt, like it's not going to work every time. So a big, big thing that stood out to me throughout the whole entire season is the Dolphins were not able to consistently get pressure on the quarterback unless they were scheming it up perfectly, unless they were doing a cover zero or some sort of, you know, stint or something on the, on the defensive line. They, they, they just weren't, they were consistent. Um, and there was only one person that I noticed that consistently at edge created pressure every time he rushed the quarterback. And that was Andrew Van Ginkle. Like anytime Andrew Van Ginkle rushed the quarterback, he was creating some sort of pressure, doing something to disrupt the play. Uh, which gives me a lot of hope for Andrew Van Ginkle coming into year three. I think he has a, you know, a, a phenomenal year coming up if he progresses the way he did from year one to two. Uh, but he was really the only guy that I saw consistently give pressure. Emmanuel Ogba, uh, he was kind of in that phase during the season where he had a lot of sacks, so teams started double-teaming him, even though they didn't need to because he was getting most of those sacks from free rushes. So Emmanuel Ogba, once, you know, after the Cardinals game, he kind of slowed down a lot because teams were just double-teaming him and no one else could win their you know, when they're one-on-ones or if you're Christian Wilkins getting double-teamed every play. Uh, so that was a big thing that stood out to me. Like, edge rusher was a huge, huge problem. Um, and there were there were a lot of plays where I was like, how long are we going to let this guy stand back here and do whatever he wants? So hopefully with the addition of Jalen Phillips, the athletic ability, uh, Andrew Van Ginkle in his second year, Emmanuel Ogba in a contract year, you know, and everyone else improving from year one to two or two to three or three to four, whatever it may be. I think that this, the, the, the edge group should be able to create a lot more consistent pressure this year, hopefully freeing up, you know, the secondary to not have to get an interception or two every single game in order to stay in it. Next thing I talked about, um, I'm, I'm going to skip number two for now because it's probably going to be the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, let's stick with the defensive line. Raekwon Davis, uh, I, again, like I just watched it as if I wasn't a Dolphin fan. Raekwon Davis, every time he takes the field, you're like, who the hell is that guy? Who is number 98? Okay, Raekwon Davis is 6'7", 330. Most centers that he'd be going up against as a true nose tackle, I mean... 312 pounds, 6'3", 6'4", maybe. Like, when you're standing next to a guy, you're lining up. If you're a center and you're lining up to Raekwon Davis, chances are he's probably 20 pounds heavier than you and 5 to 6 inches taller than you. So Raekwon Davis, if he can even just continue the success he had last year, if he can just improve slightly from year 1 to 2, like, he's going to be a problem for defenses. And there's no reason why, given his skill set, his athleticism, how big he is, his size, there's no reason he could not be a top interior defensive lineman in the NFL. He just needs to continue to improve, get better, keep that motor up, and he is going to do some damage in the NFL just based off of size, right? Just based off of his size compared to interior offensive linemen like centers uh, going up against a nose tackle like him, he's going to win a lot of matchups. So he's a guy just quick, 
thing that stood out to me throughout the whole entire season when he played, he just like disrupted all the time in the past game in the run game, whatever it was, he was just a dominant force. Okay. Number four, technically it's a four on my list, but we're going to make it uh, the third thing we talk about. Typically when the dolphins went up against elite quarterbacks, right? I'm talking the Josh Allen's, the Patrick Mahomes, the Russell Wilson's, When we went up against good quarterbacks, they took advantage of the mediocre talent that we had at safety, okay? And I don't mean Eric Rowe in this because Eric Rowe, view it as you want. Eric Rowe is basically a a, a cornerback who covers tight ends. You know, you can't really view him as a true safety. But the Bobby McCains and the Clayton Fedulums of the Dolphins they were just getting exposed anytime they went against elite quarterbacks. Because a prime example, again, I go back to the Buffalo game. Bobby McCain, we are down four points, I believe. It's 24 to 20. Um, or is it 24? It's 24 20, 24 21. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But we're down. Crucial third down. Josh Allen step back, steps back. Bobby McCain bites a route, right? steps up and John Brown just runs directly past him and Xavier Howard, who was covering him needed help right there. He needed that extra help from the free safety from Bobby McCain. And he wasn't there. He wasn't there because he wasn't playing disciplined. He's not a true safety. He's more of a nickel corner with good communication skills. Why he, that's why he's at safety, but there were so many plays where stuff like that happened and the quarter there the cornerback like Xavier or Byron expected help over the top and didn't get it okay we we can look at the Kansas State Chiefs game as well right Kansas State Chiefs game there was a huge bomb to Tyree Kills like one of his only good plays of the game uh, aside from that little jet sweep and the reason that happened is because Clayton Fedulum bit on the route and because Ty- Tyreek Hill runs like a you know four one or four two, ran right past him. So that was a big thing that stood out to me. And honestly, it's a part of the team that I didn't realize was so uh, mediocre, because I really thought the main issue was the edge, right? That's the main thing everyone talked about: edge, edge, edge. But when I watched the film of it, the safety, the the lack of discipline and the lack of uh, just like natural talent at safety at free safety last year cost the Dolphins a lot of points a lot of drives and and uh, you know in the Bills case uh, with with the Bills game week two cost them the game really because if you stop him right there on that third down they punt the ball off and you have a chance to go down and win the game for the team but when you bite on a route and you allow a guy to run right behind you wide open for an easy touchdown, that's not going to help the team. Okay, and I, I put something on Twitter. It was a it was a short clip I found on YouTube of Javon Holland, and it was him defending the crossing route, which is something the Bills like to do a lot, him defending it perfectly, staying disciplined, not biting on any routes, staying deep in his set, and it was an incompletion because he had the quarterback had nowhere to throw. That's what we need on the team more. We need more of that discipline because especially as I said with the Bills, right? Division opponent, the Bills run a lot of crossing routes. 
And if you're not sure what a crossing route it is, is, it's basically two guys on opposite sides of the field run across the field as fast as you can and hope that with the lack of communication between cornerbacks, one of them bumps into each other or they have to slow down you know, halfway through the route because they're afraid of hitting their teammate. That's what a crossing route is. And the Bills, if you go back and watch any game against the Dolphins the last two years, they have consistently just done crossing route after crossing route against the Dolphins. And so if you can get someone who can, like Javon Holland or Jason McCourty, who can be disciplined enough to play the crossing route, and on top of that, you can add edge rushers in because crossing routes take a long time to develop. If you can get edge rushers in there who can get to Josh Allen quicker, get safeties who can play the crossing route more disciplined, that's a recipe for success. Versus before, when you didn't have edge rushers, they weren't getting to Josh Allen soon enough. And you had a safety like Bobby McCain, you know, not to cast asparagus on him, but you had a safety in Bobby McCain who wasn't a, a true free safety. He wasn't sure exactly how to play that position instinctually. So he would bite on routes and you would have, you know, a Tyree kill, a John Brown just run right past you. Um, so that again, like when I watched that from an outsider's perspective, I was like, that's an issue. They got to get better at just deep, high safety coverage. And they did. Then you look at the draft, they go out, they get Javon Holland. They go out, they get Jason McCourty recently. Um, so hopefully that, that fixes really what to me is not much, you know, less of a need than edge rusher. I could honestly argue safety and edge rusher last year, free safety and edge rusher were equally as important. Which is why when you look at where the Dolphins addressed what they addressed in the draft, edge rusher and then safety, right? They didn't, they didn't go a different position. They, they felt safety was important enough of a need to address it with their first pick in the second round, which is still a very, very high pick, right? So clearly they thought they needed help there, and it was very evident. If you go back and just watch the Buffalo game, Right, just go back and watch the Buffalo game week two. It was alarming how easy, I guess it was, for, for the Bills to just complete crossing route after crossing route, deep pass after deep pass, because we weren't having good enough safety help. And on top of that, the edge rush was not creating enough pressure on Josh Allen. Next up, switching to the offense, because we had three on defense so far. The and this is gonna be like kind of like beating a dead horse here, but the lack of speed in our wide receiving room was it was it was sad to to be completely honest. Like there were games where it just looked like we just had a different speed than any other team in the NFL. Like I didn't go back and watch everyone's film of the NFL. But just like, kind of like when you're in college, like if you watch college football and anytime Alabama plays against someone, like you're like, yeah, they just like look better. They look faster, stronger than the other team. Anytime the Dolphins went against another team, their wide receivers just look like faster, stronger than ours. And, and it showed up on, on game day, like it showed up on Sundays. The amount of time it took these guys 
to, to, to develop their routes, the amount of time it took to separate, the lack of separation they got. I mean, you have to think about it if you're, if you're a fan, right? If you're a Dolphins fan, the same way we look at it from a, defense, a defensive perspective of, okay, if we're going against, say, the Bills, who are the wide receivers we got to worry about? What are they good at? What are their traits? Yada, yada, yada. And how do we stack up against them? If you're a team going against the Dolphins in 2020, what does that conversation look like? Because to me, again, I was watching this from an outsider's perspective. There wasn't one person on the Dolphins that I feared because Devontae Parker was injured, right? He was never 100%. Uh, Preston Williams was out after like, what was it, nine games. Mike Kosicki, yeah, tight end, cool. He's no Darren Waller. He's no Travis Kelsey. But he's he's good, so I could give you maybe that. Lynn Bowden, Malcolm Perry, Mac Hollins. Don't give me Jakeem Grant. Jakeem Grant, yes, he has the speed. He's probably one of the fastest guys in the NFL. But when you're not reliable with your hands, I mean, that, that kind of negates any speed you have. That's what makes Tyreek Hill so good and so dangerous is not only is he fast, but he's very, very reliable. He always catches the ball. Something that Jalen Waddle also has, right? He has the speed, and he has some of the best hands I've ever seen from one of those faster guys. Typically, the fast guys don't have the hands. That's what makes them those return specialists. Jakeem Grant is, is no different. And so when I looked at it, again, from the outsider's perspective, I was like, what if I was an opposing team, what do I fear on the Dolphins' offense? Especially like speed wise, there's no one. There's no one that can take the top off the defense. There's no one that can take a 10 yard pass 45 yards. There's no one on their team that can do that. The closest we had to that was Jakeem Grant. And there were multiple plays. Again, I, you can look at the Cincinnati game, yeah, but what about the Las Vegas game? Jakeem Grant's coming across on a, on a shallow route, just a small drag route, and he has like all the grass in front of him. The ball's thrown perfectly to him right in his hands. He bobbles it, which makes him slow down. And by the time he catches it, it's like a seven-yard game. But if he would have caught it perfectly in stride, like he should have, it would have been an easily 20, 25-yard game. So like even the speed that we did have, it wasn't reliable. So if you were a team going against us, you know, it, it was funny at times because for instance, the Kansas City Chief game, right? I went into that game and I was like, okay, well, you're you're expecting a, a quarterback in Tua, who's a rookie, coming off of a near career ending injury. You're expecting him to keep up with Patrick Mahomes, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, McCole Hardman, and and Sammy Watkins. You're expecting him to keep up with that. But the wide receivers he has to work with are Mike Kosicki, Matt Collins, Jakeem Grant, and Lynn Bowden. And I think at the time, I didn't realize how absurd that was because we were winning a lot of games, and so I was caught up in that high. But when you look at it like four and a half months later, it's like we really expected our team to keep up with the Chiefs, and that's what we had on the field at wide receiver. And not only is that what we had, but Tua actually outperformed Patrick Mahomes with those weapons. He ended up having three total touchdowns, one interception, which was a bobbled, again, a bobbled catch by Jakeem Grant. Wasn't a bad pass. And he outperformed Patrick Mahomes with those weapons. 
So it was just like when I watched that, when I went back and watched it, I was like, man, we as Dolphin fans really expected to go out here and compete with these guys. And the Chiefs were probably looking at it like, okay, um, the hardest person we have to cover today is Mike Kosicki. Aside from that, I've never even heard of half these people, aside from Jakeem Grant. And we all know he's been in the league for like four years now, hasn't made a name for himself as a wide receiver because that's just not his, that's not what, what he's best at. And so when I just watched the whole entire season in general, when Fitz was in there, when two was in there, the lack of speed was just, it was, it was, it was, it was bad. It, it really was. And, and it makes just even more sense why the Dolphins added what they did. Right, they added Jalen Waddle, one of the the fastest wide receiver in the draft, probably. They added Will Fuller, a burner who's great at intermediate routes, honestly, and is phenomenal at just a deep threat, just like deep passing game threat. So we went out and said we're no longer going to be that team that that opposing defenses look at and they're like, who do we have to cover? No one. Now defenses have to go into games saying, well. I mean, who, who do we double now? We can double Devontae Parker, but now Will Fuller can run right by us. If we're doubling Will Fuller and Devontae Parker isn't having to be wide receiver one, he's probably going to be healthier, and he is a phenomenal 50-50 ball receiver. And then you have to worry about Jalen Waddle, fastest guy on the team. And if you are too busy worrying about those guys, Mike Kosicki's just running across the field wide open. The team no longer has that excuse of not having the speed. And so now that we have the speed, you can expect a lot more explosive plays, which for any quarterback, not just a, a quarterback in his second year, anytime you can get guys who can get separated faster, anytime you can get guys who can run faster, it's going to make the your life as a quarterback that much easier because you don't have to sit back there for 10 years and wait for all these routes to develop. So that was the, that was honestly the biggest thing I saw in offense was just like the the lack of speed. I mean, even not even wide receiver wise, like like that. Yes, wide receiver wise, we had a lack of speed, but even like offensively, as far as play calling and no huddle, like the tempo of our offense was even slow. Like I was like watching the Denver game was hard. Like watching the Denver game was hard because. It, it just looked like we were running like in like a 50-year-old offense or something. Like we were going out there. We knew Tua against the Chargers, against the Cardinals. We knew that he ran really, really well when he was in no, no huddle, but we didn't run any. And so now we have a guy in George Gotze who, when he was with Houston, did a lot of no huddle. Um, and so hopefully you added speed to wide receiver. Um, and, and you added speed, hopefully with play calling. Cause I believe last year, the dolphins were like 28th in speed. As far as like play calling, uh, I, I think I listened to that correctly. I was listening to locked on dolphins and, uh, Kyle Crabb shared a, uh, shared a stat that the dolphins were like 28th in, in tempo, like how fast the, the, the further back you are, the, the slower your team is tempo wise. When George Gotzi last called plays. They were 13th, his team. The Houston Texans were 13th. So hopefully this offense catered around to his skill set can have more speed, not only playmaker-wise with the wide receivers, but also play-calling-wise. Like, can we get 
more up-tempo? Can we look more alive on offense? And hopefully that can just catapult this team into that next level that we hope they take in year two. So last but not least, right, we talked about the edge. We talked about lack of talent in the safeties. We talked about Raekwon Davis and hopefully the, the jump he could take year one to two. We talked about the lack of speed on offense. Now we need to talk about the one thing that everyone talks about from 2020 Miami Dolphins season. And I tried my hardest to simply like look at this from an outsider's perspective. If I was just like a guy watching football, watching the Dolphins 21 or 2020 season. And that's Tua. Okay. So number one thing I wanted to say is a lot of the reason why I feel like people in the media talk about Tua the way they do about being a bust is because of the benchings, right? If Tua had never gotten benched, people would probably just be talking about Tua as having a conservative season. Conservative is going to be a word I use a lot right now, but having a conservative season, right? Nothing spectacular, nothing super, super bad, just conservative. Middle of the pack, right? But because he got benched, that switched the narrative to, do the Dolphins believe in Tua? Is he good enough? Did he get benched because he sucks? Did he get benched because he's injury prone? Like, why did he get benched? And when I watched the two games, right, because I went, obviously I watched all the games, But when I watched the two games where he got benched, I left thinking, like when he got benched, I left thinking like he didn't get benched because he was playing bad. That's what was weird to me is like, especially in the, the Raiders game, Tua wasn't playing bad in the game at all. And that's what was confusing to me is that like the narrative around Tua is as if, you know, Tua got benched because he went out there and threw, you know, 500 interceptions and was playing horrible. He wasn't at all. In fact, when he played the Raiders, here, let me pull up his stats for the uh, Raiders game. Hold on. We had to pull up his stats for the Raiders game. When he got benched, he was 17 of 22. 95 yards passing and a touchdown. No interceptions. Um, 17 of 22, if you're not sure what math that is, that's a 78% completion percentage. One touchdown, 94 yards, 95 yards passing, no interceptions. That's not bad. The problem, and, and, and obviously against Denver, honestly, to be honest with you, after watching the Denver game, I will go to the grave thinking that he got benched because the Broncos were like hitting his knees hard. But even against the Broncos, 11 for 20, 83 yards and a touchdown. He wasn't playing bad. He was playing conservative. But against the Raiders, you have to look at it as there's one game left in the season. We have to win this to give ourselves the best shot to get into the playoffs. And against the Broncos, again, Call it what you want. Tua was getting hammered in that game. The wide receivers weren't getting open, and the offensive line was just, they didn't understand a stunt to save their lives. If the if the edge rusher was not running right at them, if they were doing any movement at the line of scrimmage, they just had no idea what was going on. And it was Tua's fourth game. 
So yeah, sorry if I deflect some blame from Tua because he was a four. He he had played three games in the NFL, but I left thinking like he he didn't throw any interceptions in those games. Again against the Broncos, eleven for 20, 83 yards and a touchdown. Not bad. Conservative. That's the difference. Just no explosiveness. Eighty three yards in three quarters. That's not a lot at all. Uh, but against the Raiders. 78% completion percentage, 94 yards and a touchdown. That's not bad. It's just conservative. So, essentially, all of the two hate is not coming from him being bad. And that's the thing people need to understand is if you actually go back and watch the film, we are essentially calling a Tua a bust because given the offensive line he was given and the wide receivers... And him being a, a, a rookie, we're calling him a bust because he was conservative. Because he wasn't willing to throw a lot of interceptions. He wasn't willing to take chances like Ryan Fitzpatrick does. Because let's be honest, Ryan Fitzpatrick just didn't care. He's a 17-year vet. He went to the Dolphins. He knew he was going to get replaced. He was going out there and it was either Fitzpatrick or Fitztragic. But Tua wasn't going out there and giving you Fitztragic games. He didn't go out there and give you zero touchdowns, three interceptions, like Ryan Fitzpatrick in week one. He went out there and just played conservative because he didn't have that experience that Fitz had to take those chances on 50-50 balls to, to Parker like like Fitz used to do. But again, it just it, it was mind-blowing to me because all this time, I feel like people just say Tua got benched and the Dolphins lost... What was the what was the final score of the game against the Bills? I'm trying to think. I don't even. I try to block it out of my mind, but I need to type it in. I no, it wasn't 31 to 28. It was, it was the game January 3rd. Let's see. 56 to 26. Oh my God, that's horrible. But I think people just the only thing they remember about Tua in the media and the the fans that are rats off ship, they remember Tua got benched. Tua lost 56 to 26 to the Bills week 17. But when you actually look at it, again, what did Tua do against the Bills? Wasn't good. No one on the team was. The defense gave up 42 points. You're never going to win a game if you give up 42 points unless you score 45, which is very, very hard to do, right? Unless you're able to outscore 42 points, which is incredibly hard, you're not going to win those games. So essentially, people got mad at Tua for for getting benched, which, again, he didn't play bad. He got benched because his team was good. Like, yeah, he was winning games. There's a thing called winning. He was doing that with his team, and and his coach had to make a decision. Are we going to keep you in if you are playing conservative, or are we going to put in a guy that may lose us the game like he did in Denver, or we could get a miracle like we do in in you know, Las Vegas. I don't want to lose the locker room because I took a chance on you uh, because we need to. And it worked out because obviously he went six and three. But Brian Flores is looking at it as I pulled fits for you. So the team is going to expect me to do the same if you're struggling. And the whole time, I just assumed that was the narrative of, oh, Tua struggled, Tua played bad, he got pulled. Not correct at all. Tua was not playing bad. He was struggling because 
look, he's a rookie. He's gonna he's gonna struggle again. The offensive line was horrible in, in especially against Denver. I mean, it was awful. But you know, Tua went out there was getting pummeled. You know, him just being about a year removed from surgery. Brian Flores was like, "Look, I'm not going to take a chance of him going to keep him keep getting injured, or uh, you know, I'm not going to take the chance that he just keeps getting pummeled." And, and a lot of those hits too were were below the waist, so kind of scary. Surprised no one got you know fined afterwards. Um, but yeah, that was just huge to me. Is when I watched like when I watched it, I was just like. I, I don't know. I understand why Brian Flores pulled Tua because, like, you, you want to win games and you don't want to lose the locker room. But, but like, the same time, it, he didn't really need to get pulled because what was what's the worst thing that happened? You would have lost one more game, right? Because you lost to Denver. The reality is, like, we can't sit here and act like Fitz helped. He threw a crucial interception at the very end of the game. It lost us the game. It was the most Fitz throw you'll ever see. Threw it into like triple coverage. He didn't win us that game. And against the Raiders, it was a miracle throw that, you know, was was phenomenal. That's the only reason you won that game. So I'm like, the worst case scenario is you would have lost the Raiders game and you would have lost one more game and you would have been nine and seven. So like you still wouldn't have made the playoffs and you would have gotten a better draft pick. But I understand, look, I understand why. He pulled Tua. He didn't want to lose the locker room, and it's probably the right move to make. But because of that, now you have a bunch of people in the media and about a bunch of uneducated fans who are now saying Tua sucks. Look, he got pulled because he sucks. You know, he lost 56 to 26 against the Bills instead of them actually watching film and going, oh, wait, Tua against, you're telling me Tua against the Raiders? Had a 78% completion percentage, no interceptions, a touchdown. And yeah, it was conservative, only 94 yards passing. But that's that's why he got pulled. And, you know, it's upsetting. Again, I understand why it happened. But now because of it, you have a bunch of people who, instead of watching tape, they just like to look at it as Tua got benched and lost, you know, 56 to 26. Even though, again, 56 of those points... 42 were given up by the defense. One of them was a pick six because Devontae Parker tripped, which I'm not saying that's on Devontae Parker, but he tripped. And Tua threw it to him, and if he doesn't trip, he catches it. He trips. It's a pick six. But, like, the other pass was a tipped pass. And then, yeah, one of the interceptions was just a really, really bad throw. But this notion that, like, Tua was going out there and he was acting like Nathan Nate Peterman, or he was, you know, acting like Josh Allen his rookie year. It's 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 false. It's not correct. He was going out there and he was playing really good football. And when he struggled against the Raiders or the Broncos, he was conservative. Instead of throwing a bunch of interceptions, he was conservative. And Brian Flores basically said, instead of being conservative, I'd rather put the guy out there like Ryan Fitzpatrick who doesn't care about throwing interceptions because at least I know he'll try to make those aggressive throws because he's not a rookie. He's seen more NFL defenses. Um, But yeah, it was just like, it, it was it was really shocking to me because this whole entire time I'm thinking to myself, yeah, Tua must have really, really struggled. You know, he must have sucked in the Denver game and Las Vegas Raiders game. 
And when I went back and watched it, it was kind of it was kind of almost like if if you remember when you're young and you're playing video games, if like someone just randomly shut off the TV. That's kind of like what my reaction was when Tua got pulled. Like rewatching it, I was like, oh, wait, like he wasn't playing bad. I understand why you pulled him, but also like, like I understand why. and, And I still support it to this day, right? I still support the move, but it was that feeling of like, he wasn't playing bad. Against the Denver Broncos, you could say, yeah, he was getting his ass kicked out there because he was getting sacked every other play. That's a lot on the offensive line, too. But in both scenarios, I was like, oh, he's not playing bad. I, there was never one There was never one moment. Let's just say it this way, and I'll finish it this with this sentence. There was never one game in Tua's first nine starts. And it's crazy that it's only nine starts, right? We're, we're talking about all this and he's only played, he hasn't even played double digit games. There was never a moment where I said, pull to it. God, he's horrible. Bench him. There was never a moment like that. And there's a big difference between a quarterback. And this is what I said in my tweet. There's a big difference between a quarterback being pulled because he was bad and being pulled because he was playing conservative. I would much rather have a young quarterback, a rookie quarterback, play conservative and the the coach say, hey, look, we know you want to be conservative and that's awesome. Now's not the time we got. We're, we're in playoff hopes. When you're when you're in year two and year three and you cannot play as conservative, yeah, you're going to be great. And this year he's he's going to take a lot more chances. But right now we got to get fits in there. But like there was never a moment where Tua was out there stinking up the place, throwing pick after pick after pick, and you're like, okay, he sucks, pull him. Even against the Buffalo Bills game, I know you may look at his stat sheet and it may say, you know, that he had three interceptions. Again, one of them was a tipped, you know, maybe it was a little high of a pass. It was a tipped pass and intercepted. The other one, Devontae Parker slipped and fell. And then, yeah, one of them was a bad pass on Tua. Okay, yeah, he threw an interception. It was a bad pass. Yeah, that's on Tua, 100%. But if you look at it as like, oh, he was a rookie coming off an injury with the lack of wide receiver help that I just talked about, offensive line had three rookies on it, and he never, like, played bad. He just played conservative. Oh, like, here's the thing. Uh, my confidence in Tua after or before watching all that film was probably like a seven and a half, eight out of 10, right? Because before I watched the film, I constantly, because you always hear the stuff from the media, you just like start to not believe it, but you start to think like, man, did he really suck? So my confidence in him was like a seven and a half, maybe eight. My confidence after watching Tua, especially like, the Chiefs game, the Cardinals game, the the Chargers game where he was embarrassing Justin Herbert until a bad snap happened. Like he was about to crush Justin Herbert 21 to 0. Like when watching those games, when when against the Bengals, and I know it's the Bengals, but still it's an NFL team. If it hadn't been for a drop Jakeem Grant pass, he would have thrown for easily 400 yards. He was at, he was almost at 300. That pass to Jakeem Grant would have been another 75 80 yards. Like I, when watching that with the lack of talent he had as a rookie with the injury and the only two times he got pulled was because he was playing conservative, not because he was playing bad. Oh, my confidence in Tua 
with the with the help that he's going to have this year at the wide receiver position with the gained knowledge and and year of offseason training that he's had oh my confidence in Tua right now is like a nine nine and a half easily easily maybe even a 10 and you guys know how supportive I was of Tua like that was at a seven and a half my confidence in Tua like I'm going to be the full homer for like the rest until like he proves which I hope he never does but until he like shows that he sucks which I don't think he ever will oh I'm I'm full homer season because when you when I watch the film, like again, I can't stress enough. I was laughing before the Chiefs game. I was literally laughing because I sat there and before each game I looked at who was playing, the roster, everything like that. When I saw the 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 you know what that he had to work with, and they expected him, and I think that was I'm trying to think. It was probably his uh, I'm trying to think. He he played against the Rams, the Cardinals, the Chargers, the Broncos didn't play against the Jets, the Bengals, and then the, the Chiefs. So I was like, they, they, they are, they're sending Tua out after five games with this to work with and expect him to keep up with Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, McCole Hardman, Clyde edwards helaire Like, that's who they expect him to keep up with. And, and guess what? He ended up, after the game, yes, Took the loss 100%. But he ended that game with, with a better game statistically than, than Patrick Mahomes. Like, after that game, I left thinking, wait a second. If the Dolphins... D- Hold on. If the Dolphins didn't give up the punt return touchdown, you're telling me Tua would have beaten the Chiefs 27-26 to with his best wide receiver being Matt Collins and Jakeem Grant? You're, you've got to be joking me. That's what I left the game thinking. And I just want you to remember that, right? Had it not been for a punt return touchdown, Tua would have beaten the Chiefs 27-26 to with his best wide receiver being Jakeem Grant. That's all I need to say. So my confidence in Tua is like at a 9.5-10. Easily. And it should be for you too. So that's it, guys. That's overall my five things that I left... Watching the Dolphins 2020 film, that's what I left thinking. Those were the five biggest things. Again, edge needed help, was not good. Safety, free safety, needed help, was not good. Raekwon Davis is going to be a problem for people. Uh, The wide receivers were not fast at all. Our offense was not fast at all. And Tua, my confidence in Tua is way higher now. Like after watching it from an outsider's perspective, like I was like, this is... This is why we're complaining, because he played conservative with a with a lackluster offensive team. We're complaining that he got pulled with a 78% completion percentage, zero touchdowns, or zero interceptions, a touchdown, and yeah, conservative under 100 yards passing. That's why we're calling him a bust. We're calling him a bust because his defense gave up 42 points against the Bills, and he had a bad game. Yeah, he had one bad game as a rookie. Whoops, sorry. That's why we're calling him a bust? Now. I left, I left that film, the whole entire film session, thinking, oh, we got something in Tua. And until he proves me wrong, I am full-on Tua train on this podcast from now on. I'll try to be as, you know, unbiased as possible, but, like, just, just, just fair warning. So that's it for the podcast today, guys. Sorry it's been so long in between my last podcast, but I'm back. 
Very excited. Uh, and next time on the podcast, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, I can get my girlfriend uh, on the podcast because I'm going to do like a little trivia. And, and she's trying to learn about the Dolphins. So I'm going to try to have her on and just like ask her questions about the Dolphins and see how much she knows. So make sure you check out that episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Fins up.